There's really no reason for you to stay awake at this point. Uh, and if you'd scoot over one chair, they can each take a couple and just kind of <laughs> spread out there, and there you go. Well, you'll put in your time with me tonight. Tomorrow, you need to find some discreet, lame excuse to be gone during that. You don't need to hear this three times. And Laurie, I will uh, keep you awake tonight with the promise that there's a, a story toward the end that actually takes us back to the time that we met when we were very young people a few years ago. That's right. So great to worship with you. I've been looking forward to tonight. Uh, they're letting me out to talk about Ephesians. Uh, that's pretty fun for me. So are you ready to go? Here we go. If you care to open uh, the Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, there's Bibles in the racks in the seat right in front of you there, and uh, also on the screen, and the passage I think is going to be available for you on your hand out as well. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this to the church at Ephesus, they must have been pretty excited, don't you think? When they first opened up this letter and the Apostle Paul that essentially founded this church, he trained us here and, and he prays for us. He now wrote this good stuff. They must have been on the edge of their seats. How much more we, in hearing this letter, would be in our hearts at least, on the edge of our seats? Because they just thought that that was the Apostle Paul, smart guy, helpful leader that he was, writing to them. We understand, beyond what they did, that this is God's living word to us, absolutely true in every way, God condensing in a few sentences the very essence of who he is and who we are and how we get to have an everlasting relationship with him. That's what this is all about tonight. And as we take a look at this, I want to think about God's great design and plan. He, he started with creation and it was beautiful and it was harmonious, absolutely gorgeous. The people, the animals, nature, and their relationship with God, utter integrity. There was no distance within anyone or in relationship with others or with God or with nature. Beautiful, harmonious creation. And then the second part of God's big story in human history is separation that happened. We call it sin or the fall, or original sin. Separation, death is separation. Where sin came in, this mankind decided to go their own way, and the result of that was being separated from God. And that had such deep consequences, losing personal integrity, now breaking in relationship with other humans, distant now in relationship with nature, and certainly a, a broken relationship with God leading to the third great part of God's story, reconciliation on how God put that back together. And as Anne continues in chapter two, starting with verse 11 next week, how God brought a restored relationship. And then the final big word in God's story, creation, separation, reconciliation, and glorification, how God's grand design is going to come all together in the future. He really is God. Tonight we're going to take a look at what happened with creation. When separation and sin came in, suddenly it was broken and shattered. So we look around today and we say, things aren't like that. I mean, I have my own issues with myself and broken relationships with others and we lie and we steal and we cheat and we're afraid of others and we have uh, locks on our doors and then we get more locks and we have police and we have jails and we're afraid of other nations and we have military and we get sick and we die. That's the reality that we live in, isn't it? And all of that came as a result of separation from God's beautiful and harmonious design. 
The Apostle Paul, actually, in the 10 verses we're looking at tonight, in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, answers four great questions. And then we'll end our time by asking ourselves a fifth question. Take a look at the first one with me. The first question that he answers is, why aren't things getting better around here anyway? And he makes a very clear answer in verse 1. Would you notice it with me? Chapter 2, verse 1 says, As for you, that includes everybody at the church at Ephesus. It includes everyone over time. It includes all of us tonight. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's why things aren't getting better around here. Dead in transgressions. Mankind, we chose to go our own way and direction. Sin, missing the mark, ultimately missing God's mark of perfection. By nature, we were sinners, and then we verified that with our own decisions and and working out of that. He says this curious thing, though. He says that all of us started out DOA, dead on arrival. You say, oh, that's not how I started out. I started out as this little baby, and I was conceived, and I grew in utero, and I had a delivery, and then they told me that I cried. I was very much alive. I began doing very much alive things, crying, eating, pooping, peeing, very much alive things. And all the rest of my life, I have been very much alive. I am self-conscious tonight, which differentiates humans from other beings. I am very much alive. Well, yes, in one sense. What's he talking about here? You were dead on arrival, DOAs. All of you were DOAs. He's talking about separation. Death is separation, isn't it? When a person that we love passes on, passes away, dies, that person's life has separated from her body. And what do we then say about the body, this temporary tent that carries us around? We say those are the human remains. What's left of separation is a body. What's separated was life. We were all born dead on arrival, spiritually. A decision that had been made before and that DNA of spiritual deadness passed on to us. Now, we were all still image bearers of God, made in his likeness and image. So while spiritually we were separated from him, dead from him in relationship, we still had this sense of we are more than just meat. There is something beyond that's transient, that's grander, that's spiritual, And that's why across human history, we've created philosophies, worldviews, and religions. Efforts to become enlightened because there is an inner sense that there's more than this. But Paul says it very clearly in one simple verse. But we were all born dead on arrival in our transgressions and sins. And that's why things around us aren't getting better. That's why. There's only two possibilities. Notice them on the slide when they come up. Either we are dead to Jesus and alive to sin, or we're alive to Jesus and we're dead to sin. There's only two teams you can play on. Uh, There was a game a little earlier in Research Stadium. Today, it did not turn out the way some of you wished it would have turned out. But I won't talk about the score of the teams. I'll just say this. When that game started, two teams came on the field. Two teams. They were, they were differentiated by the uniforms that they wore and the sides of the stadium that they were on. And as far as I know, no one at halftime decided to switch teams. 
No. You're either on one team, a Bruin, or you're on the other team. What are they? Thank you. Come on. The Beavers. There's only two possibilities. No one showed up and wore a Beaver uniform on the top and wore the pants of the Bruin uniform. That's just not how things work. This is what Paul says about spiritual life. There's only two possibilities. Now, I have to tell you that in our culture, in the 21st century, in the United States of America, particularly in the northwest part of the country, this is not a popular worldview. You understand where I'm going with this? Don't restrict me to two teams. Don't give me an either or. We live in a pluralistic culture. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. You find your truth, baby. I'll find my truth, and we'll just all get along. It's called coexisting, isn't it? That's a pluralistic worldview that's fairly prevalent across our culture, and particularly in the Northwest. The Bible says this way. No, there's two teams. You are either dead to Jesus and alive to sin, which means you're a part of the imperfect group. Or you are alive to Jesus and dead to sin, which means you are perfect. Now, that makes it even tougher, doesn't it? Because are you alive to Jesus tonight? Yeah. And dead to sin? Yeah. Are you perfect? Well, yes, you are. Because if you tell me yes to the first two, you have no option other than to say, I'm perfect. It's categorical. Now, this is how God views us and not us, right? We get that. So I have to tell you today, and would be able to tell you, that a few imperfections may have demonstrated themselves out of my life today. We get that. So this is where we go to God's word and discover revelation because we would not have intuitively found our way to how he views us. When God looks at you, you're either alive to sin and dead to Christ and imperfect. Or what's the other option? You're alive to Jesus and dead to sin and perfect. And that's how he sees you. Perfect in Christ. No wonder... We're talking about the essential tonight of grace because it's grace that's not only amazing, it's beyond our ability to comprehend it. It's called unfathomable grace because when God lavishes his grace on us, he takes us from deadness and he resolves the separation with forgiveness and he lavishes his grace on us and he says, I'm going to look at you and treat you like you're as perfect as my son. Well, why aren't things getting better around here? The first answer is because we were all started dead on arrival. Let's take a look at the second question that is poised, posed that he answers so well in verses two or three. The second question is, so what is it that we're fighting? Why are we feeling this tension that we've just expressed of being very aware of our own struggles and difficulties and fights? And why is it that we encounter difficulty socially and culturally as well. Take a look at verses 2 and 3 where he answers this great question. In which, he's going back to sin, in which you, who's you? All of us, all of the Ephesians, every human that's ever been born, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of, notice three things, the ways of this world, number one, and of two, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedience. And then third, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
This is what Paul says. Hey, there's a war going on. God looks at you in Christ and says, you're perfect. You live life on planet earth and you say, I'm not so sure about that. There's a whole lot of tension and struggle going on inside and around me. We are living in a human celestial battle. Planet earth is a battleground. We are walking wounded warriors. That's who we are. And Paul very clearly here tells us about the three enemies that we live life on planet earth fighting against. Notice the first one as all three of them come up. The first one is Satan. He's called in verse 2 the ruler of the air, one of many titles given to him. Satan is a being created. He was beautiful. He was power. He decided instead of worshiping God with his beauty and power that he wanted to worship himself. And he decided that he wanted to take as many people in anti-God worship as well. And he has committed himself to, as Jesus said, kill, steal, and destroy. Satan is a created being. He's not as powerful as God. He is ultimately defeated, but he wrecks havoc where he wish, wants to. And while defeated, he is not just a force, he is a being. Paul says, we live on this planet, and there's a battle going on. And there's a battle with Satan. Second, he says we battle our own flesh. He talks about all of us. We used to gratify the cravings of the flesh. What's the flesh? It's this stuff that's on the bone, I understand. But metaphorically, in this spiritual sense, what is the flesh? It's the old part of me that I inherited through the DNA from the fallen Adam, which just wants to be its own selfish pig and do what I want to do and Go my own way. It's my propensity to blame others instead of accepting responsibility. It's my tendency to lash out in anger in hurtful ways. It's my tendency to speak in harmful ways about other people. It's my wanting to have it my way. He says we're in a fight, a fight against Satan, a fight against our flesh. And the third thing is he says we're in a fight against the world. The world is all of our flesh put all together. Isn't that an ugly thing? Yeah. So we end up now with these worldviews, with the systems of thinking. And, and so we find that it may actually advantage us to lie or to, ste- to, to cheat or to steal or to be harmful about others or to lash out in angers or to express greed and to harm with, woods, with words. That's why we live in this world that needs things like locks and police and jails and etc. Because there is a world that we live in that wants to have its own way. And in the middle of that, there is this battle that we're waging. He says, this was your nature, past tense for people who are in Christ. And then he says, this is the world in which you're living. Ah, it used to be what drove you. Now it's still what drives the prevailing culture around you. And that's why in every generation we are passionate about as many people escaping that and coming to a restored relationship with Jesus Christ. Of course, as Lori had the vision to go from Evergreen to Badaka, Uganda, to start an orphanage and a school and a church and businesses, of course, as a church, we would look at the huge Huge need in Uganda. How many orphans in your school and in the country? Two million orphans in the nation of Uganda. Two million orphans. 
Of course, as a church, we would rally together and we would send and we would pray and we would financially support. And some of you, as we have a team, will go. Of course we would go to love right now 31 of those kids in Jesus' name and see them rescued with forgiveness and freed to an eternal destiny. Of course, Wednesday nights here, we would open our doors. And this, this week as Ignite launched, I think there were about 70, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th graders. And it starts out, this is the biggest group we've ever had in the fall. And then it grows from there and it double, doubles or so. And Kevin, I think, visions this year is that it'll probably triple as the school year continues. Dozens of you were here on Wednesday night serving those kids in different ways for five and a half hours. Of course, we would reach into their lives and say, we will do anything we can to help you experience the freedom in Christ through forgiveness and the fullness of Christ through the fullness of his Holy Spirit because we are in a battle and every generation, the Spirit and the church are engaged in the battle for the souls of kids and young people. Of course we would be engaged in that because all of us have the same need to be freed from sin and Satan through forgiveness and to be filled with God's Holy Spirit, so we now, with transformed natures, can live in a world with the prevailing values that we used to support but now have risen above and live life successfully as people who have been restored in a relationship with God. That's his response to the second question. So let's take a look at the third one that he raises and answers for us, and it's this. So what does grace look like anyway? God in his amazing grace came to bridge the gap. What does it look like? Take a look with me at verses four through six. But because of his great love for us, that's the first thing that grace looks like. It looks like great love. God who is rich in mercy It's the second thing grace looks like, rich in mercy. Made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Grace looks like this. Grace includes love and mercy And in verses that follow, kindness, God's great grace. This is what Paul says about that in these three verses. He says, listen, 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on a cross, and even though he was raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father, and we're about to read that he's seated in heavenly places with the Father, that place of all authority and power and dominion, Jesus still carries the scars of spikes that were driven through his hands. He came into this earth as a lion and he left as a sacrificial lamb. Now given the name above every other name, but Jesus still bears those scars. This is what happened 2,000 years ago, Matt. When Jesus had those spikes driven through his hand and he died on the cross, Matt was there with him. Go, whoa, don't get weird on me here. Matt's right here, and he doesn't look 2,000 years old. Yeah, that's what it says. You died with Jesus Christ. 
The price of sin, that separation that occurred, is death. The wages of sin is death. God's love and mercy and grace must also satisfy God's justice. So some perfect one had to die for Matt's sin and yours and mine. 2,000 years ago, Mitch, Jesus Christ died for your sin and you were there before the Father. And then Jesus on the first Easter Sunday came back to life and you were a part of that amazing resurrection. Because God who is eternal doesn't differentiate space and time like we do. He sees the whole thing. And Mitch, when Jesus Christ, a few days later, a few weeks later, actually physically ascended from earth to the Father, you were raised in Christ to be seated in heavenly places. That's what it says right there. That's amazing grace. That's what grace looks like. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant that about you. Everything God could and needed to do to separate, to, to, to remove the separation and to bring you back into full relationship with his created design happened right there. That's what grace looks like. So let's take a look at this fourth and last question that Paul raises and answers in the last four verses of this, pat, this chapter, of this passage. The question that we ask is, so why did God do this? Why did God do all of that for me and for us? Would you notice from verse 7 as I read? He did this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So why did God do this? As the slide comes up, there's two reasons that he tells us very clearly in the passage. The first one was that he wants you to look good. Can you imagine that? He does. He wants you to look good. That's why he did this. It says, in order that, in the ages to come. Do you ever speculate what in the ages to come might be like? This is kind of kind of fun, and there's no wrong answers. There's no right answers because God's given us revelation that's bounded by Scripture. Everything he's told us here is absolutely true, but he didn't tell us everything that was true. He didn't tell us everything that's going to come in the future. This is mostly a story of God's interaction in this particular age, this age where he's engaged with human beings. Did you notice that says that there's going to be ages to come? So guess what? There's probably going to be new universes and new kinds of created beings and all kinds of new adventures. And we're going to forever be the bride of Christ as humans linked with God in a relationship that will forever be unique 
in all of the ages to come in God's creative eternity. Isn't that amazing? And he wants you for the rest of the ages to come to look good. That's what he wants. In order that in the ages to come, he might show you off. Show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So this is how it works. You, uh, you're part of a team, and you win the big deal, and you get the trophy. And the trophy goes in a trophy case. And then you have a kid, and the kid grows up, and you take the kid back to the trophy case because you want your kid to know that you did something really special. That's what you want the kid to know. And the trophy is what celebrates initially the victory, and it also commemorates for time future that this event took place and that we should go back and celebrate it again. We are God's trophy case for all of eternity. He wants you looking good. Because when in the ages to come, and let's play with it, let's have fun. There's these other created self-conscious and God-conscious and God-aware beings. And he brings them along and he says, I want to show you something really amazing. Because you know Wally. You know Wally. You know Wally. I have lavished my grace on Wally and doesn't he look good? And what's going to happen? In these ages to come, whoever God is showing you off to is going to say, Wally, you have never looked so good, buddy. God's grace on your life is amazing. And guess what? They're not going to praise Wally, are they? Because they're probably going to see video clips along the trophy case with Wally and all of his less than glory Wally. Yeah. And they're going to spontaneously burst into praise to God for his lavish grace on Wally. That's why God's being so good to you. He has plans for you folks, future plans. He wants to show you off so that in the ages to come, I'm quoting, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's why he wants us to look good. That's why it goes on to say, so you've been saved by grace. Listen, it's not of your own doing. Your awareness of your sin wasn't even of your own doing. Your need for forgiveness wasn't your own doing. Your decision to reach out and accept forgiveness wasn't your own doing. The faith to do that even was a gift from God. There's no room for boasting. Listen, folks, we all started dead on arrival. We all started separated from God. We all started broken human beings. We all got revelation from God to accept his forgiveness. We stand forever as trophies of his grace. There's no place to boast in this thing. It all started and ended with him. That's what he has to say about that. And that's all I have to say about that. Let's go to the next one. The other reason that he decided to lavish his grace on us is because he wants you to do good. He wants you to look good, his grace all over you. He wants you to do good, expressing his gracious likeness all around you. You notice that there, that God has prepared in advance good works for us to do. Now, 
Obviously, we don't do good works to earn his favor. That would violate grace. But no, having received God's grace and now being back tied into his likeness as image bearers, filled with his spirit, of course we would do good works that he prepared for us. So this idea is where we're going to wrap up this evening. So what do those good works look like? I want you to think with me for a minute about good works that Jesus did. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38 and 39, Peter, as he's preaching, summarizes Jesus' life in that he went around doing good. What did it look like for Jesus to do good? Well, we're pretty in tune to what he did like in 10% of his life, right? The last three years of his 33 years, miracles and signs and wonders and preaching and identifying leaders and being patient with them and kind of being ticked with them and leading them and dying on the cross. We're pretty familiar with what he did for 10% of his life. What do you think Jesus' good works looked like for the 90% of his life that preceded it? Now, it doesn't work, does it, to say, well, Jesus' good works only happened in the 10% of his life. No, he was absolutely perfect, wasn't he? Never violated his father in every way. Did exactly what the father told him to do at every point in time throughout his life. Jesus did good works that had been prepared in advance for him for 33 years. What did he do in the first 90% of his life? He made furniture. He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He had calluses. He helped fix stuff in people's homes. That's what he did. We say, oh, yeah, that's not very important, though, because the good works are all the big stuff that he did out there, the power and stuff. That's not what the Bible says about Jesus' life. His whole life was a life preordained in doing good works. So what do good works look like in our life? If we think that the only good works of Jesus that counted were the last 10% of his life, then we will forever be asking God for some kind of grand and grandiose blueprint for us to do some kind of super awesome, amazing thing. It sounds like this for people. You've heard of them. If God would only show me what he wants me to do, then I would go do that with all of my heart. And they could spend a whole life asking God for this blueprint, which he usually doesn't give, does he? And why? Because if we got a blueprint, we wouldn't trust him. And the whole nature of this thing is learning to trust God. Haven't you discovered that the good works that God has for you to do are more obvious when you look back than when you look forward? And when you look back, life begins to make more sense because you were changing diapers or you were going to school or you were hanging out with the guys at work or you were with your friends over coffee at Starbucks or you were caring for aging parents. You were just living life, weren't you? And in retrospect, you look back and say, God led me to do good works through my life. That's what living in grace looks like. So, Lori, back in the day, probably not more than three or four years ago, when we were in our late teens and we met, and in our early 20s, I had the pleasure when I was 21, 22 to be the overseer of a house in Eugene. It was called at the time the House of His Presence. It was for students. That house eventually was sold. It was an old fraternity house and Eugene Faith Center. Our church bought another fraternity that was larger. It's currently called the Onyx House. And our friend, A.J. Sobota and Quinn were the overseers of the Onyx House before they came here to Portland to start the church uh, over in the Hawthorne District. So uh, A.J. and me were like this, except I was done with my 
period of service there before he was born. Other than that, we, we, we're just like this. So back in the day, it was called the House of His Presence, and it was, there was room for about 40 students there. It was full, and, and uh, men and women, and we had a vision for more people to, to be a part of that community, and we wanted 64. We wanted 32 men and 32 women, students at the U of O, LCC, mostly living there. And so we rented some apartments next door, just down the street, in an apartment complex there, but we were still all able to eat together, and we were able to meet together back in the old fraternity house, the house of his presence. Now, this, is, uh, this uh, granted, this is going to terribly date the story. I already did it for you. All 64 of us had one telephone. That was the deal. One telephone. You do not need to ask if it was a landline, do you? One telephone. And the deal was, oh, <laughs> thanks a lot, party line. That's just, was that Jeff? Did you do that, Jeff? Did that come from you? Oh, it was Ron. Okay. <laughs> Jeff, I was going to say, buddy, you've surprised me here. I didn't know I was going to have to be suspicious of you during the services. I'm glad your mother's here tonight to keep her eye on you. Mother and wife are safe. It was Ron. It was not a party line. <laughs> so the deal was, these were the rules about the phone. When the phone rings, it gets answered. That was rule number one. Rule number two, it gets answered by the person physically closest to the phone. Rule number three, you'll be decent when you answer the phone and you'll actually talk to the people and you'll find out who it is they're calling for. Rule number four, you will go to that person's room, knock on the door and see if they're there and tell them they had a phone call. If they're not there, rule number five, you will take a message and you will leave it here on the board for them. Five rules about the phone. Worked pretty well. So I came home, middle of the afternoon. Students were mostly a class or working or students or whatever they were doing. I walked in. I'm the overseer of this thing. I walk in the house and the stinking phone rings. Mm -hmm. And I had a bad attitude about that. I did. In fact, I wanted to, to talk to management, but I was. So I had a conversation with myself about the five stupid rules. Looked around. No one was closer to the phone than I was. I picked up the phone, tried to mask my irritation about being bothered, and as my greatest fears were, it was for someone who lived not in the house, but down the street in one of the apartments. I set the phone down. I turned around. I went back out the front door. I went down the steps, out to the sidewalk, left, down the sidewalk, up the sidewalk, to the building, up the stairs, down the hall, around the corner, found the door, pounded on the door more loudly than I would have needed to, but it felt very good at the time. I'd been kicking stones on the sidewalk, muttering to myself, probably let a, a PG-13 word or two slip out. This was not me at my finest. This was me looking ugly and fleshly and selfish and perturbed and small. You got the picture? Okay? You say, yeah, that's what you are all the time. Don't you dare say that. To <laughs> Don't you dare. I pounded on the door, no response, just like I assumed. Now I pounded on the door, and I really let my aggression and frustration out. I seriously pounded on the door, and I was about to leave, and the door opened, much to my surprise. And there he stood. Now, the problem with him standing there was that the phone call was for Bridget. And Bridget's apartment was one door down, and in my frustration, I missed Bridget's apartment, and I was banging on his apartment. But I recognized him because that was one of our house apartments too and it was just one of the guys. In fact, he had been one of my roommates back over in the house. 
But what shocked me was not that I was at the wrong door. What shocked me was how he looked. Tim was the starting middle linebacker for the U of O Ducks. Tim was much bigger than me, and his, like, body mass index was very different than mine. Nothing but bone and muscle. He had long hair. This was in the day. It was curly hair. What shocked me was it looked like he had been electrocuted, and his hair was just absolutely frazzled out. Now, Tim was, could be one mean dude, and so he could look at you with a piercing stare, but instead his eyes were wide open. He just looked freaky, scary, crazy is how he looked. And he just looked at me when he opened the door, and I took a step back. I started apologizing. I thought my life was in jeopardy. It was like, it was like waking a bear out of hibernation. I, had, I was in fear for my life. And I was backing up and, oh, Tim, man, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to pound on your door. I assume I woke him up or something from now. I said, hey, man, no, I'm talking. I'm stuttering. He just doesn't say a word. He just stares at me and shuts the door. (sighs) Went next door, knocked on Bridget's door. She was there. Went back, did my own thing. Had dinner that night. Later that evening, he came up to my room, came into my room, sat on my roommate's bed. There were just the two of us there. And he said, Jared, I want to talk to you about this afternoon when you came over. I thought, oh, man, this guy, if he carries a grudge, my life is in danger. So I started going into my grovel mode, apology. And he looked at me and he said, shut up. And I did. I did. With very clear communication. Very, very clear communication. He said, shut up. He said, uh, this afternoon I came back from class and I was so depressed I decided to end my life. So he said, uh, I got my, my handgun, and I put a round in the chamber, and I sat on the edge of my bed. And I said, God, if you don't want me to do this, interrupt me right now. And he said, I was putting the gun to my mouth, and I heard you knock on the door. And he said, I put the gun in my lap, and you pounded on the door. And I knew that God was saying, don't do this, Tim. I've got plans for you. Wow. That's unfathomable grace. For me, that day. For Tim. For me, I was just being a puke, a wimp, a grump, gripe, fleshy, complainer, walking around in grace, works that God had prepared in advance for me to do, good works, all over the place. Here's a happy carrier of good works, kicking rocks, Christian cussing, grumpy, pounding on people's doors in frustration thinking bad thoughts about everybody in the world, just walking around doing good works. This is my life. Saving lives left and right. That's me. Just living in grace, baby. True, isn't it? Wasn't about me. There's no Jared boast in this story, is it? Be kind of cool if I would have been praying in a closet, you know, for six hours, fasting for three weeks, and The Lord says there's a guy down here at apartment number X and go down there and pound on the door and you'll save his life. That'd be a cool story. And you'd be saying, oh, Jared, man, he's tied into God like this. I mean, they're tight. You ever get a, 
tough situation check in with old Jared, man. He's got like the direct line to God. It's not the party line either, Ron. I mean, they're talking the direct line. We're not talking AT&T drop calls here. We're talking hardwired in. There's no boasting for Jared in that story, is there? And just being a poop walking around in grace. That's the story of Jared. Amazing grace, lavish grace, walking in good works that God had prepared in advance for me to do. And I was totally out of the picture, but I was totally in the picture, wasn't I? Living in grace, not by works. So there's no room for any of us to boast. It was a pretty lavish day of grace for Tim, wasn't it? That God heard his prayer, help. And God sent a grump (laughs) down to pound on his door and to pound on it a second time so that Tim would say, God heard my prayer and he answered. That's amazing grace. Hmm. So the last question is the one that we ask. It's where we end. It's, so what's our response to all this? <laughs> There's really only two things that we get to do. You notice a couple of weeks ago when we started, there was only one thing for us to do, and it was your faith was the word. You wouldn't be surprised tonight that in this whole passage that there was just one thing for us to do, would you? Your, what would the word be? Faith. Yeah, you just have to accept Our response then is one of two things tonight. First of all, to accept Jesus' forgiveness. If if you need to get right with God and you haven't, tonight you're not right with God, you're separated from him, accept his forgiveness. It's just available to you. Maybe you've accepted Christ's forgiveness. You've been following Jesus for two weeks now or two months or two years or two decades or 60 years beyond. Maybe tonight your request will be like mine to receive the fresh fullness of God's spirit. We're set free from sin and Satan through God's forgiveness. The separation is closed and now we're one in Christ with God. And we are filled with God's spirit so that we can live above the system of this world and our own flesh that would pull us back into the old smallness. All that God has for you is wrapped up in his grace. Tonight, are you receiving his forgiveness? Are you receiving the fresh fullness of his spirit? In fact, it was said about Jesus that he would have two major names, that his name would be Jesus because he would, what? Save his people from the sins. And as cousin John the Baptist said about Jesus, there's one coming who is going to be greater than me, and he is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus, your Savior. Jesus, your baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Would you let him tonight lavish his grace on you?